0: Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com.
1: John chapter 3. Some of you guys know that back at, around New Year's we started a journey through John. We take little breaks to do topical series so that nobody gets worn out. It's like running a marathon, but you only have to waddle and you only go 100 yards at a time. So, you're Welcome. So we're waddling through the Gospel of John. Uh, this next eight weeks I've entitled Saints and Sinners, the reason for that is that this Gospel writer shows us some amazing things in these two chapters we're going to cover over these eight weeks. Namely, he puts this unbelievable encounter with a Bible teacher named Nicodemus, and we're going to spend the next three weeks on him. And then we're going to spend five weeks talking about Outsiders, people who have never been to church who aren't even welcome at church. And Jesus loves both of them. Jesus talks to both of them. And we've got to figure out here on planet Earth that Jesus came for both groups. We've got to figure it out. The problem with the saints, the guy who's in church all the time, is he doesn't think he needs God. He thinks he's good enough on his own. And then if you know that you're messed up and you know that you're a sinner and you agree with God on the law parts, yes, I know I've done wrong. Your struggle is going to be is his grace enough for you? Is his grace more powerful than your sin? And so, John is going to answer these questions for us, and hopefully, we will faithfully bring that to you guys over the next eight weeks. Let me find my little magical clicker thingy here. All right. Not so magical, almost magical. Theoretically, hey, look at that. Okay, was that you or was that me? That was you, okay, no magic, all right. Okay, part one of this eight week series is called Take the Red Pill. Some of you did not avail yourselves to excellent cutting edge CGI films in 1999. So we're gonna, we're gonna show you the clip later that makes this all make sense take the red pill. That's your your command for today. This is what we're doing. Uh, We're going to tell you to take the red pill. If you don't know what that means yet, you will. All right. So, John 3. Let's read together. There was a man named... Go a couple slides ahead. I've got the... Text in there. There, Sorry, I lied. One slide ahead. Go back. Okay. There was a man named Nicodemus. Clearly his mother loved him. That's a special name. All right. A Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. If you're new to church, that's just a deeply, deeply religious person. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us, Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. And Jesus, we would ask that your Holy Spirit right now would open the Scriptures to us and give us understanding on a heart level. Because we see from Nicodemus and from others an unbelievable capacity to fill our heads with knowledge about you while our hearts are still far from you, and we don't want to be that. So, Jesus, help us today to cherish your word, to receive it. Amen. Note takers, grab your pens. This is beautiful. Jesus' love doesn't stop at your doubts. Do you know that? Next slide. Jesus' love doesn't stop at your doubts. I'm not gonna ask anyone to raise a hand because if you're a human being, you have doubts. Some of us who already love Jesus, we think it's this like unwritten rule that we're never allowed to have doubts, we're not allowed to have a dark night of the soul, we're not allowed to ask tough questions. And sometimes we come to those conclusions because we're not hearing brothers and sisters voice it out loud. And so, little little vision statement for disciple groups, if you cannot share your doubts honestly in a disciple group, you can't share them anywhere. That needs to be normal. Job, who loved God more than anybody around him, was willing to, to give full vent, God, here's where I'm doubting you right now. Nicodemus is special. This is so cool. There's a man named Nicodemus, Jewish religious leader. So, that's, you know, this is a dynamic equivalent, New Living Translation. This is Sanhedrin. If you're new to church, they're a group of 70, mostly Sadducees, but 70 Jewish, very religious, very smart, know lots of Bible verses. Guys, these guys went to Iwana twice a week. They got all of the little plastic crowns. Some Baptists are with me. These guys were hardcore. And for a member of the Sanhedrin to be sneaking in here at cover of night, he's trying to figure out who is Jesus. It means he has doubts. He's not coming in broad day to declare, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the way Peter does. He doesn't do that. He doesn't know yet. But he's got enough of a question that he's willing to get up and go. And I don't want us to underestimate the power of what's happening right here. Instead of shaming Nicodemus in our mind and going, oh, he's a coward, he's sneaking in at night, he is a man who has a lot to lose. We're going to see later in the Gospel of John, after Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus shows up with 75 pounds of very expensive burial ointments to wrap and take care of Jesus, so like stuff that for the average fisherman is probably three or four years wages. Nicodemus is wealthy, he is powerful, he is respected in the culture. So for him to come at all is pretty amazing. There's something burning inside him. He knows lots of verses. Everyone in Israel is looking to him and to his group, tell us how to love God, tell us how to know God. And he's got something deep in his bones that forces him to go and talk to this guy who they say has healed people. The blind now see the lame walk. I've got to talk with this one. And Jesus does not scold him for having doubts. Did you guys notice that? Jesus didn't have an angry tone for him. He just dives in. It's funny. It seems almost like he interrupts. So, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. So we're in verse two. We know that God has sent you to teach us. That's pretty brazen already for somebody in the Sanhedrin, right? That's already pretty brazen in a good way. Your miraculous signs, you're going to keep hearing John. John keeps talking about signs, 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 are evidence that God is with you. So he's willing to say he's Rabbi, and he's willing to say that God sent you But he doesn't yet know how sent this rabbi is. Because God sent Moses. Church people, are you with me? God sent Moses, right? God sent Elijah. He sent Hosea. He sent Jeremiah. But sending the second person of the Trinity to take on flesh is a little bit more sent than the last guy who was sent. That's a little more sent. Okay? So seeing the fingerprints of God on this guy's ministry, you may not fully know who he is yet, but it's enough to pique your curiosity and show up. And my question for you two two millennia later, do you think Jesus is going to chew you out if you bring your doubts to him? This is critical. If you're not a Christian, you could be intimidated that I'm, I'm not allowed to have doubts. I have to have all of my questions answered and my uh, systematic theology has to be all neat and orderly and I have to be able to explain to animals of every type on a boat and how, worldwide flood. And then when I have underst- everything understood, I'm allowed to become a Christian. And you know what Jesus says to that? You become a Christian when the pneuma, this is a fun play on words. John loves his plays on words. When this word, which either is translated spirit or wind, The pneuma, you have no idea where it comes from or where it's going. Stop trying to pretend that you can understand how God gives you a new heart. It is the greatest miracle of the cosmos. And he has to give you a new heart. And here's how I'm going to put it for you, Nicodemus. You were born once and you became alive. It needs to happen a second time. You became physically alive and now we've got to do this spiritually. And he doesn't even shove it on Nicodemus directly in this text. Pastor Roy's gonna pick this text up at verse nine last week and actually get to the thrust where he says, believe, 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 believe. Nicodemus' part is to believe, but first Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's gonna work a miracle. You can't explain when he comes, when he leaves, what he was doing while he was here, but just like the wind rushing past you, hallelujah, yesterday we had a breeze. You can feel the wind and you can see what it does, can't you? Good luck explaining it. I was in a geology class a year and a half ago where my professor who'd been teaching this for over 30 years had to admit that at its essence, everything related to wind in the scientific world is still a theory. Like, every, like your, your seventh grade science teacher will say confidently, well, it's the rotation of the earth and it's the temperature and it's the tilt of the earth and the season. And the, the scientists that are deep down in it say they cannot prove any of it. It's still a little bit mysterious. They might be decent theories, but there's still a mystery to it. How much more so Jesus using this illustration 2000 years ago. You don't know where it came from, you just feel its effects. It's happening. And and you can even see it. You can see the evidence of wind from 2000 feet away. You see this tree about to get knocked over. You don't you don't have to be feeling it yourself. You can see what it's doing, right? There's a whole sermon right up here. Man, I still have more points. Anyway, do you believe Jesus is upset at your doubts? It is critical that we answer that question wherever you are in faith, because he's not. He's just not. A loving father allows a one-year-old boy, this is theoretical, Theoretical. if you had a one-year-old boy who was really lazy as all get out and didn't want to learn how to walk, I'm not saying this is happening to you or has ever happened to you, If you had a one-year-old boy who was just like, I like everyone carrying me everywhere, thank you very much. When he's trying to learn to walk and he falls, is a loving, caring adult gonna go, you idiot! You fell! That's crazy. That's crazy. So why are we expecting our Heavenly Father to chew us out for our weaknesses? Second, it's better to come to Jesus by cover of night than not at all. Do you guys know that? It's so much better to come by cover of night than not at all. Do you allow shame to stop you from moving closer to Jesus? Well, all I can muster up right now is, I I could come at night, that's literally the best I feel like I could do. Daytime terrifies me. I have so much to lose. Do you know there are at least four countries, truthfully more, there are at least four countries on earth right now, where as people consider the gospel deciding whether or not to believe it, they have to hear about it in secret, and they have to plan their escape from their family, concurrent with the decision to become a Christian. To become a Christian is to run for your life. All evangelism is by cover of night in some places. And it doesn't mean you're a coward, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, it's just that the cost is so high. and we here, under the grace of political freedom where we can worship how we want, we are tempted to think there's not a high cost, but the cost of sacrificing our narcissism is a very high cost. If I've been worshiping myself my entire life, right? Lord of me. I've been the boss of me, and that's a big sacrifice to make. Some of you come here on a Sunday morning And that might be your way of coming at night. You're truly a guest. No one knows you here. No one invited you. And so you figure you can sneak in, hear what I have to say, sneak out. Bad luck for you. We're super friendly. So you already met seven of us. But this was your way to sneak in and hear about Jesus and sneak out before figuring out what's the cost going to be. Some of you are watching online right now because to physically show up at a church would be too risky. And there is no shame for you. There's no shame for somebody taking baby steps toward their creator. It's better to come to Jesus by cover of night than not at all. He does not scold Nicodemus for coming to him at night. He launches straight in. I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He just gets straight to the point. And then the rest of the, much of the rest of the conversation is explaining this one statement. Next for you note takers. Even the nicest religious person in the world must be born spiritually you guys know that? You could be super nice. This is, and I mean no offense to you, if if you're Mormon or have a background in Mormonism, you've got close families that are Mormon. I actually believe this is the terrifying reality for family and friends in Mormonism. When you have a very high ethical view and you show it, like just going to Marriott resorts, when you show a high ethical standard throughout the culture of this religious body and you have family values and all of these things, it can be so tempting to say, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. And the reason that's dangerous is because if you compare yourself against human beings, you're totally right you give generously, you pay your taxes, you love your wife, you love your kids, Your, you know, whatever. If you're comparing yourselves against human beings, you're right, and that's what's so, the, the worst lies in the cosmos are 90% true. Spoonful of sugar makes the poison go down. but we will not be judged by whether our character and our holiness and our righteousness was better than the next guy. It's not gonna happen that way. We will be judged against the holiness of Jesus Christ, period. Morally perfect. So this God who will be judged against his character, he could have just sat up in heaven cozy eating Twinkies. He didn't, did he? He came and he put on flesh and he allows religious teachers to sneak up to him at night to tell them this. You've been born physically and it brought physical life. Now you need to be born spiritually to bring spiritual life. Jesus didn't have to come to tell us that. But he starts off again. These, today's sermon and the next two. We're gonna dive into Nicodemus, this really, really good guy. And this good guy needs to be totally transformed from the inside out. This conversation would be so silly. Some of you who've read the Bible are reading ahead in John 4 with the woman at the well. This would be a silly statement to the woman at the well. Her life is a train wreck of poor decisions, bad ethics, not even allowed at church as Jews understand church. And you're like, hun, you need transformation. She's like, uh, yeah, tell me something I don't know. It's the guy who thinks he might have his acts together. He's the one who needs to be told, you've got to be transformed. Jesus is going to bring the same salvation to this woman later and to a Roman centurion, but he's going to package it differently because a great preacher and a great pastor and a great savior communicates the gospel to us exactly as our heart needs it. And no one knows our hearts like Jesus. He's saying to the religious guy, and this is really backhanded and this is gonna be offensive to you, but it's something that needs to be offensive so that we understand it. Jesus is saying in the way that you were not alive, you did not exist, and then you were conceived and you were born and you are here, you exist, that all needs to happen spiritually. And he says it to the guy who knows lots of Bible verses. Paul in in Romans and other places is going to be even more brutal. You are spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead because you are a son of Adam. The first man rebelled against God, and all of us inherited a tendency to rebel against God. I've told you guys before, I was in a small group in 2010 that had children and teenagers and adults and their parents and grandparents all together in one group. It was amazing. And we talked about this reality. That every human being has inherited from Adam a tendency to rebel against our creator. And I, playing devil's advocate as a teacher, just said, that doesn't sound fair. You just inherit it? Now, anytime we say that's not fair to the almighty God, Paul's answer is like, and who are you? When was the last time the Clay barked at the potter telling him, anyway, that's literally Paul's answer in Romans, who are you? But when I played devil's advocate and I said, this doesn't sound fair, why do we inherit a tendency to rebel against our creator? And a 10 year old boy said, but it's not fair either that we inherit his righteousness. That's exactly Paul's point. You inherit something evil And then, by God's grace, you inherit something amazing. If you want it. This demand for rebirth is repeated three times. I'm not a numerologist, that stuff is silly. But basic repetition matters. When somebody repeats something, it's what's on their heart. Does that make sense? I keep throwing shade at Oakland Raiders fans, because that's what's on my heart, you know? It just keeps coming out. Except for Pastor Roy, except for Pastor Roy. Uh, when somebody says it a lot, that's clearly something that's deeply important to them. That makes sense? So uh, he says three times, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. And I, and I realized as I was searching for an illustration this week. We're gonna watch a video here in just a second. The Matrix, the first movie, second and third got a little weird, but the first one gave us an unbelievable picture of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's not every area of scripture where you can go and find a movie, that almost perfectly illustrates what's going on. So let's go ahead and watch this, uh, try to pay close attention.
0: Do you want to know what it is? The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church.
1: Morpheus' last words. Follow me. Part of what's so critical about this scene is that this illustrates that will precedes knowledge. Neo has to decide what he wants. If he takes the blue pill, he can wake up in the life he's always had and enjoyed and be comfortable and be happy. Or he can know the truth. Those are his options and he has to take the pill, he has to make a choice right now and then Morpheus will show in his Alice in Wonderland language how far down the rabbit hole goes. This is what following Jesus is like. He will call us to follow him with very little information. Here's what you need to know. You're a sinner, I'm not, I died for you, I love you. Accept that sacrifice, I died for you. Well, I have more questions. I'll I'll answer lots of questions along the way. Follow me. Follow me. You know what you already need to know. Neo actually already knew everything he needed to know. There is a lie that will make you comfortable, and there is a truth that will cost you. Did you hear that warning before he reaches for the red pill? Hey, reminder, all I'm offering you is the truth. It might not be cozy. You might not like it. Spoiler alert. He gives his life for that choice. And that's what the choice is to follow Jesus. If you're not willing to give everything, then it's not the right choice. But once they show you how far the rabbit hole goes, what it is to follow Jesus and see all of life the way Jesus sees it, to be able to love God and love people the way you're supposed to, totally new lenses through which you see the world, then you realize that the sacrifice of your life is a small price to pay for all that you've received. Jesus tells us as much as we need to know. I died for you, hello. I've proven my love for you, I've proven my trustworthiness, follow me. Last, if you're offended by Jesus' claim that you cannot see, You'll never gain sight unless a miracle happens. Did you guys know that? It's very possible, commentators defer on this, it's very possible that Nicodemus is a little bit offended in the middle of this conversation because he's one of the religious leaders. What are you, what, what are you huh? What are you telling me? Like, come on. And part of the reason commentators believe Nicodemus might be offended is that this phrase, born again, that Jesus uses was regular, everyday Jewish conversation for a Gentile convert, for a proselyte. So if you were Turk or Roman or Greek or African or whatever, and you chose to be circumcised and say, I am a part of Yahweh now, they called that born again. He basically just told the pastor he's not saved. Offensive much? Show up at the pastor's conference, tell all of them that they're going to hell. And you're not lying because you're God. Jesus says in other places, blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Jesus wounds you. He wounds parts of your pride so that he can bring truth into your life and into your heart. He's going to wound you from time to time. Anybody who's been with Jesus a while can tell you stories of the wounds. Because a loving doctor will cut you first to go in and grab what doesn't belong there and take it out. Some practical application questions. If you're a religious Christian, that was loaded, wasn't it? So you're a Christian and you participate in all of the outer trappings of Christianity, you'd rule follower and all that, ask yourself this, what are some ways I could keep my focus on the person of Jesus instead of on those outer symbols of religion? What are some ways? I would argue there's probably no better way than before you open your Bible in the morning. See how I just assumed what you guys do. Before you open your Bible in the morning to talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to show up right now and show me more of you or I might just get bogged down in head knowledge. I I want more of you. Give me more of you. There have to be purposeful steps to say, this is a relationship with my creator, and if I do not love him and trust him more by the end of this exercise, it was a waste. I'm not joking, guys. I know that sounds extreme, especially those of you that love head knowledge. If you read the Bible, but you don't love God or trust God more by the end of it, I think you wasted your time. Love him, trust him, love him, trust him. Because those two things produce obedience that give him glory. Love and trust, love and trust. Or if you're a religious guest, you're not sure what you think of Jesus, but you consider yourself a spiritual person, ask yourself this, am I willing to follow my spiritual hunger and consider that Jesus might be more than a rabbi? I'm hungry for something, I'm yearning for something, I'm already really religious, whether it's palm reading, Eastern stuff, my own kind of just image of kind of roughly who Jesus is, but I don't think it's the same as the Bible. Like, Whatever your spirituality, am I willing to do what Nicodemus did? Because we know he eventually viewed Jesus as more than a rabbi. He eventually is very publicly making a huge financial commitment and a huge personal risk to give a dignified burial to Jesus. So we know how this conversation eventually ends up, even though we don't see the middle part of the journey. Am I willing to consider that Jesus is more than a rabbi? If you're a guest who's non-religious, no particular faith, you're just trying to kick the tires of Christianity and see what you think, I just want to encourage you to keep attending the Saints and Sinners series. That was a lot of S's, oh my goodness. These next seven weeks are going to have so much for you, especially when we get into chapter four. If you don't consider yourself a particularly religious person, you're going to love the woman at the well. Her story is going to bring so much hope and so much power and so much instruction on how we interact with God when we've never been to church and didn't even necessarily think we were welcome. There's so much good stuff coming down the pipe. Uh, If you are An elder, I'd love it, or a pastor, I'd love it if you'd make yourself uh, available along the walls here. We're gonna do a prayer time here. And uh, if you're a wife of an elder and you're also able to help, uh, that would just be wonderful. Um, I do ask, and I I hate to be so directive, but it's really important for a lot of reasons. If you're a lady who would like prayer, please go and talk to a lady. If you're a gentleman who would like prayer, please go and talk to one of the gentlemen. Um, But we would love to pray for you during this response time. Pray with you, pray for you. You can pray in your seat. The next slide, please. Um, And and if you don't leave your seat, I wanna encourage you to grab a pen and write down your key takeaway. If God said one thing to you today, really loud and clear that you do not want to forget, write it down, whatever God said to you, a call to action, a step that you know you need to take um, in response to the word. Because if we don't respond to the word, we're just fooling ourselves, right? All right, so we're gonna talk to Jesus for a few moments, connect with him, and then I'll come up in a bit to dismiss us.